Hello and welcome to The Adventures of Paul Temple from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Steve Trent shuddered visibly as she thought of the narrow escape she had experienced. Thank goodness you were here when it arrived. Why, I... Paul Temple interrupted her. How many people know that your real name is Harvey, Louise Harvey, he said. Yourself, she replied. Lord Broadheads, the proprietor of the Evening Post. And Sir Graham Forbes, she thought a moment. That's all. Paul Temple nodded, and Merritt. Inspector Merritt, he added. I told him myself. Inspector Merritt? Yes. For a long while, neither of them spoke. Each was preoccupied with this new problem that confronted them. What are you thinking of? asked Steve Trent at last. Paul Temple hesitated. I was just wondering how long Sir Graham had smoked Russian cigarettes, he said. Chapter 14. Behind the Scenes The door opened and Diana Thornley appeared. Diana! There was amazement in Dr Milton's voice. Has he been through here on the phone? asked Diana Thornley, irritably, peeling off her gloves and throwing them onto the small oak bench. The doctor looked up at her in surprise. You mean the chief? Yes, she replied impatiently. Yes, of course. Dr Milton seemed puzzled. No, of course he hasn't. I thought you went down to town to see him. I went to town, all right. I waited over three blasted hours in that tube station. There wasn't a sign of him. Surprise gave way to anxiety in Dr. Milton's face. I wonder why he didn't turn up, he asked her. I don't know, she replied thoughtfully. The two were sitting in the drawing room of Dr. Milton's house. It was three hours after the death of Skid Tyler at Scotland Yard. For perhaps half an hour, Dr. Milton had been alone in the room, pacing backwards and forwards, smoking innumerable cigarettes, continually looking at the clock. When Diana Thornley came in, his eyes brightened for a moment, thinking that she might have news. Now both were sitting in front of the fireplace, equally dejected. You haven't heard anything further about Skid? asked Dr Milton suddenly. No, she replied. They're still holding him as far as I know. I hope to God Skid doesn't talk, he added anxiously. That's all I'm worried about. Just then the door opened and a tall man moved slowly into sight. Snow Williams was a rather sinister individual in the late forties. He was wearing a drab grey overcoat, and underneath it an equally drab grey suit with badly worn shoes. He was very thin, and the deathly pallor of his gaunt cheeks added to the unpleasantness of his appearance. Even the hardened Diana Thornley felt uncomfortable in his presence. Slowly he came forward, until he stood with his back to the fireplace. Then he took off his overcoat, hung it carefully over a chair, and lit one of Dr Milton's cigarettes. Only then did he speak. 
Any news? He asked. His lips barely parted for the words to issue forth. It was a smooth, deep voice that had, oddly enough, once known a public school and even a university. No, answered Diana abruptly. Didn't you see the knave? He continued. No, she replied again, this time even more impatiently. Snow Williams seemed to share Dr. Milton's nervousness. Something's in the wind, he said anxiously. Something's in the wind, if you ask me. Well, nobody is asking you, said Diana, with obvious irritation in her voice. Snow was in no way annoyed by her tone of voice. It's a devil of a time since the robbery, and we haven't heard a word about Skid, he continued, unperturbed. I tell you, he'll talk. He'll talk. Dr. Milton looked as if he could scarcely restrain himself. Shut up, Snow, he burst out angrily. Then, after a little while, he asked, Have you seen Horace? Yes, was the reply. What about the stuff? That's all right, answered Snow. He chuckled in his throat. It was an eerie sound. That's all right, he repeated. Then there's nothing to worry about, exclaimed Dr. Milton. He pointed to a sideboard where stood decanters, siphons, bottles and glasses. Mix me a drink. You'd better mix yourself one, too. Snow Williams walked over to the sideboard and opened a bottle of whiskey. Just as he was pouring it out, a telephone bell began to ring. That's the chief, said Dr. Milton. It's the special line. Yes, agreed Diana. I'll take it. She walked over to a cupboard in a corner of the room, pressed a hidden button and watched a panel slide back to reveal a telephone. She lifted the receiver and started speaking. Hello? Hello? Yes? Why didn't you meet me? What? Yes. Yes, I'm listening. What is it? put in the doctor anxiously. Diana signed him to be still. Yes? When? Temple? Yes. Yes. I say, be careful. Uh, Milton's here now. Yes. Yes, all right. Goodbye. She replaced the receiver, pressed the button to close the panel, and rejoined the two men. Well? asked Dr. Milton urgently. How skid? came from Snow Williams. Diana Thornley looked hard at them both. Skid's dead she announced. Dead? echoed the doctor. Yes. Diana Thornley paused. He was going to... talk. He... he didn't, inquired Dr. Milton anxiously. No, the knave got him in time. The doctor sighed with relief and took the drink Snow was offering him. Why didn't he meet you? He didn't say, Diana Thornley replied. She paused, deep in thought. You'd better get in touch with Horace, Snow, she instructed. Tell him we meet again on Friday. Friday? There's a jewellers at Nottingham called Trenchman, she explained. They've got a new stone. The chief wants me to have a look at it. I'm going over there tomorrow. If it's as good as the reports say it is, then uh, we'll discuss the matter on Friday with Dixie. Good, agreed Dr Milton. Oh, and there's just one other point, said Diana. Our friend Paul Temple has got to be taken care of. Do you think you can manage it, Doc? Milton began to laugh. What do you think? He looked at the lovely dark girl before him, now imperious as she was ruthless. He chuckled again. What do you think? Chapter 15 The Wristlet Watch The plan Paul Temple had suggested to the Commissioner of Police had won wide favour. Here at last was a definite move that might lead to something tangible. Up to the present, the police had been working completely in the dark, for both of the criminals who could be identified with the crimes, Lefty Jackson and Skid Tyler, had met a sudden and unexpected end. Scotland Yard only knew of men who had worked for the gang. They knew nothing of any of its present members, save that its leader might be a nebulous figure known as Max Lorraine, or the Knave of Diamonds. Now Paul Temple was carrying the war into the enemy camp. He had himself formed one or two shrewd suspicions, but needed confirmation for them. 
The police themselves welcomed the plan in that it might at last give them something positive to work on. On the Thursday after Skid Tyler's sudden and mysterious end at Scotland Yard, Steve Trent had driven her little sports car up to Bramley Lodge. An old acquaintance was coming to see Paul Temple, and Steve was anxious to meet him. Temple and Steve were now sitting over their coffee in the lounge, awaiting his arrival. As usual, they had much to talk about, and, as usual, where journalists are concerned, most of it was concerned with the stranger happenings of the moment in which they were personally involved. In this case, however, although they tried to forget the Midland mysteries, conversation seemed to drift back to the subject quite naturally. At last, Price came in to announce the arrival of Alec Rice. As he entered, Paul Temple jumped out of his seat to welcome him. The two had not met for some years, and the warmth of their greeting showed how glad they were to see each other again. The jeweller was a man who looked at least fifteen years junior to Temple, whereas he could only have been four or five years younger at the most. He was a huge man of breezy manners who swept everything before him. He was now wearing a pair of old and very voluminous grey flannel trousers with an even more ancient Harris tweed jacket. Nevertheless, Alec Rice was not entirely an old public schoolboy who could talk of little but sport, and had to adopt the exaggerated accent of pseudo-culture. He was essentially a businessman, who had thrown off his robes of office to get into these comfortable old clothes for an informal call. Consequently, on being introduced to Steve, he felt it more discreet to withdraw as rapidly as circumstances permitted. Not that Steve made him feel gawkish or boorish at all, but he felt he was both intruding and that his garb was not quite what it might have been. Steve was wearing a long dinner dress of black silk, while Paul Temple, who was by no means a slave to fashion, but liked to do the right thing, was wearing a tuxedo. I'm in rather a hurry, Paul, he started, but I, uh... His voice tailed away in some embarrassment. I, uh, happened to be passing, and, uh... Paul Temple came to his rescue. That's all right, Alec. You can speak in front of Miss Trent. Oh, good. Uh, well, your little publicity stunt about uh, the Trenchment diamond seems to be working all right. We've certainly had plenty of inquiries. Oh, questioned Temple. Uh, most of them, of course, are quite legitimate, Alec Rice explained. People in the trade, firms we've dealt with for years. Uh, but this morning, about eleven o'clock, I think it was, a girl came into the shop. She asked to see some statuettes we had in the window. Uh, she examined one or two and eventually bought one. Uh, just before she was leaving, however, she asked to see your stone. She said she'd read something about it in one of the newspapers. He paused. Paul Temple had been listening intently, while Steve had hardly dared move in case she missed a word. Go on, said Temple. Well, there's nothing more to tell, really. She admired the diamond we showed her, and, uh, and that was the finish of it. Paul Temple nodded. It was a sure sign that he was very deeply interested. What did she look like? he asked. Uh, dark, said Alec Rice briefly. Sort of, um... Again, he seemed a trifle embarrassed. Temple suspected at least a few seconds' light flirtation between the two. Uh, sort of, uh, voluptuous, he explained. A very feminine ripple of laughter came from Steve. Alec Rice tried to prevent the slight blush he felt stealing over his face. Good-looking? questioned Temple. Yes, was the answer. Yes, I suppose she was. Well, something must have impressed you about her, or... Alec Rice attempted to redeem himself in Steve Trent's eyes. As a matter of fact, old boy, I got the impression that all this business about the statuettes was a sort of blind. I think the real reason for her visit was to have a jolly good, uh, deco at the, uh, diamond. Was she tall? asked Paul Temple. The jeweller was a little dubious. Yes, I, um, I suppose he was, he said hesitantly. Paul Temple laughed. He don't seem to have been very observant. Good Lord, old boy, you can hardly, uh, um... His voice tailed off as he struggled to recollect some detail or other about the girl's appearance. I say, just a minute, 
he suddenly started. I tell you what I did notice. She, uh, she had a rather snappy wristlet watch. Looked to me as if it was made of uh, onyx or something. Uh, it was, uh... Temple finished the sentence for him. It was black with a diamond clasp and a small platinum safety chain, he said quietly. Alec Rice opened his mouth with surprise. Yes, yes, he exclaimed as Paul Temple finished. I say, he continued excitedly, I say, do you know the girl? I think perhaps I do, Alec, replied the novelist softly. I think perhaps I do. Temple rose and took from the mantelpiece a new pipe he had bought a few days before. It was an habitual gesture when he was thinking over some problem. For a few minutes there was silence in the room. At last the jeweller got up. Oh, well, he said, I must be toddling. Paul Temple was taken by surprise. Uh, look here, he said. Won't you stop and have a drink or something? Sorry, old boy, in a frightful hurry. Alec Rice was always in a hurry about something or other, with a seemingly endless stream of appointments. When Temple came back to the drawing room after showing his friend out, he found a very puzzled Steve waiting for him. Did you know the girl he was talking about? She started. Yes, answered her host. Her name is Diana Thornley. She and her uncle, Dr Milton, dined with me a fortnight ago. And you noticed the wristlet watch? Yes, I noticed it, he answered thoughtfully. And so did Alec. And so did the constable at Leamington. He suddenly looked up. Do you know, Steve, I think it might be quite a good idea if we paid Dr. Milton a visit. Paul Temple liked to take his life in a leisurely fashion. It went with his slight tendency to drawl. He, of all men, always seemed to have an infinite amount of time, perhaps because the busiest of men are always able to fit even more into their schedule. But Paul Temple was also essentially a man of action. He could take the initiative better than anyone else, and rapid movement and thinking came as naturally to him as they did to Steve. For Steve, too, liked action. She lived in a world of action. For nothing requires more rapid thinking, more rapid work, than an evening newspaper. And much as she admired what she regarded as Paul Temple's perpetual pose, she herself could never adopt it. They thought over the suggestion of the visit to Dr Milton. To think was to decide. No time like the present, said Steve, with an expectancy and excitement in her voice. Paul Temple said nothing. By way of answer, he left the room. Two minutes later, he was back, clad in his huge grey camel hair coat, in his hand, his large fur-lined gloves and battered felt hat. He looked at Steve a little quizzically. Coming? he asked. Right now, she answered happily. She jumped up and went to put on her coat. She might have been going to a cheery summer picnic. She had not noticed the highly significant bulge in Paul Temple's overcoat pocket. Chapter 16. Going Down. I should ring again said Steve. She was standing outside Dr Milton's house with Paul Temple. A few yards away in the drive stood the car in which they had arrived from Bramley Lodge a few minutes before. Once again Paul Temple pressed the bell push. In the distance they could hear the peal of the electric bell echoing through the house. The noise stopped and everything was as still as before. The atmosphere seemed strained and eerie as though immediately before a thunderstorm. Steve gripped her companion's arm. Through his thick overcoat, he could feel the strength with which she held him. There doesn't seem to be anyone in, as far as I can... Uh, he broke off. Just a minute. Resounding through the hall, they could hear footsteps approaching. Next, they heard bolts being drawn, and presently the door opened. Before them stood Snow Williams. Good evening, sir, he said quietly. I should like to see Dr Milton, said Temple. My name is Dr Milton is out, the other interrupted. He went into Evesham about an hour ago. Oh. oh, I see, Temple replied. Um, then perhaps Miss Thornley would... Uh, Miss Thornley is with the doctor, sir, 
Snow Williams spoke in his dispassionate voice, and instinctively Paul Temple felt there was no truth in what he was saying. Oh, uh, well, that's rather unfortunate, isn't it? He said after a moment's pause. Was the doctor expecting you, sir? Uh, no, replied Temple. No, I don't think he was. Still, if he's only popped into Evesham, it might be quite a good idea if we waited. Snow Williams did not appear to welcome the proposal. I hardly think the doctor will be back for quite a little while, sir. Oh, don't you? asked Temple. Still, I think we'll wait, he said pleasantly. Snow Williams hesitated. Very good, sir, he said at last. This way, if you please. He closed the door and led the way through a large and stately hall. Their footsteps echoed over the parquet floor. One or two oil paintings hung on the walls. On an old-fashioned carved mahogany stand hung a collection of coats and hats. The butler opened a door and showed them into a large, comfortable room, which appeared to be in frequent use. Newspapers and periodicals littered the tables and chairs. Among them, Paul Temple noticed a copy of the Police Review and suppressed a smile. On the mantelpiece stood a number of small gilt statuettes. The doctor seemed fond of sculpture. In a corner of the room stood a statue half-life-size of Aphrodite. In the hall, Paul Temple had seen another large marble statue of Apollo. Dr Milton was apparently very classical in his tastes, if a little obvious, Paul Temple reflected. This is the lounge, sir, Snow Williams informed them. I'll let you know immediately the doctor returns. Splendid. What name shall I, uh... Temple. Paul Temple. A look of surprise came into the man's eyes. Temple, he repeated. He paused, then seemed to recollect himself. Ah, thank you, sir. Then he left the room and closed the door. Steve Trent did not know whether to laugh or shudder at this strange specimen of humanity. Well, I don't think Boris Karloff would keep him awake, she remarked to Paul Temple. The novelist began to laugh. Behind that rough exterior, there probably lurks a heart of gold. Lurks is about right, if you ask me, laughed Steve. Neither of them seemed to have any inclination just to sit down and await the arrival of Dr Milton. Together they started examining the room. All the furniture and decorations were obviously of the best. A beautiful old silk Turkish rug lay in front of the fire. Indeed, the room could scarcely have been more luxuriously equipped. I say, remarked Paul Temple at last, it's a pretty impressive sort of place, this, isn't it? Yes, she agreed. Then she turned to the mantelpiece and pointed to the little figures on it. Our friend the doctor certainly believes in statues. Nothing particularly modest about them, either, remarked Paul Temple. Steve rippled with laughter as she contemplated the nudity to which he referred. Meanwhile, Temple walked over to give them a closer examination, and Steve began to laugh anew. Hello. Hello, he exclaimed, looking down from the mantelpiece to the grate below. What is it? Steve asked, now serious again. Dear, oh dear. It looks as if our friend Mr. Karloff was spinning a little story when he said the doctor and Diana left an hour ago. Why? There's a cigarette end in the fireplace, and it obviously hasn't been there very long, judging from appearances. Steve did not take the discovery quite so seriously as her companion. Perhaps the butler was having a quiet little smoke, she remarked. That would account for him keeping us waiting. It wouldn't account for the lip rouge on the cigarette, dearie, said Paul Temple, ironically, unless we've greatly misjudged our friend. Steve Trent joined him in front of the fireplace and proceeded to examine the beautiful little statuettes. They were perfect specimens of workmanship. Indeed, two of them looked as if they were of solid gold and worth an immense sum of money. Suddenly, Steve came to a stop before one of the statues. I say, Paul, she started. Yes? This is a funny sort of thing, isn't it? What is it? asked Paul Temple quietly. I don't know, Steve answered. Looks like a figure of something or other. 
Being gifted with an exceptionally large measure of curiosity, Steve proceeded to finger the strange little statue. Its upper half seemed separate from the remainder. The top part's quite loose, she exclaimed as she made the discovery. Look, it... She suddenly hesitated. Steve had turned the statue round, idly wondering whether it could be unscrewed. As she did so, a section of the oak panelling in the wall, several feet square, began slowly and softly to slide back. Paul, look! She shouted across at him. Look! Paul Temple came to her side, and together they stared at this extraordinary discovery. Behind the panel, all was intense darkness. Steve, full of excitement, returned to have another look at the little statue. No, don't touch the statue, Steve. Temple admonished her. He felt in his pocket and extracted a flat pocket electric torch. We must have a look at this, he said softly. He switched the torch on and flashed the light through the aperture. It was not big enough for both of them to look through together, and Steve found it hard to restrain her impatience. Can you see anything? she asked at last. Paul Temple withdrew his arms and head and looked into her anxious eyes. Yes, he said, it's just a small room, nothing exciting about it. It's not even furnished. Oh, said Steve, feeling a trifle disappointed. Let's have a look inside, he said, however. He managed to push back the panel a few inches and started climbing inside. The opening was now just big enough for a man to work his way through. The bottom of the opening was some two feet from the floor. Slowly and carefully, Paul Temple began to clamber through, watching for anything that might happen. Soon he was inside. Then he stretched out his arm to help Steve into the little room. Come on, Steve, he encouraged her. Can you get in all right? Yes, she replied, as she placed one foot on the other side of the panel, unconsciously revealing as she did so a length of perfectly shaped leg. Then she bent down and was soon inside the mysterious little room. Not very impressive, is it? commented Paul Temple. It doesn't seem to be used at all, as far as I can see, she replied. Nevertheless, there was very little dust on the floor. Both stood looking round, equally mystified. Isn't there a light? asked Steve. Yes, but I'm blowed if I can see the switch, was the answer. Set in the middle of the ceiling was an opal glass bowl which betokened an electric light, yet neither of them had noticed any sign of a switch which would work it. Close the panel, Steve, Paul Temple hazarded. I have an idea that might work it. She pulled the panel. Immediately the little chamber was flooded with light from the bowl above. They could now see their immediate surroundings better, but found there was still nothing extraordinary about them. I thought it would, he said. I could see the small notch in the corner of, uh... He broke off as a strange noise came to their ears. What's that? he asked. They listened intently. It was the sound of machinery. It might have been the whir of a dynamo or some electric motor. It seemed to come from somewhere close at hand. It sounds like... Steve Trent started, then she broke off. She'd been feeling the panel, trying to push it back. Paul! she exclaimed in sudden alarm. Paul! The panel won't open. Won't open? He repeated, gently pushing her aside. Here, let me try. He struggled hard, but it refused to yield. By Timothy, he said. We're locked in. They looked round in helpless amazement at their tiny prison. They pushed at the sides of the chamber, but without avail. Their desperate search for some hidden button or switch that might put an end to their imprisonment met with immediate failure. Listen, exclaimed Temple suddenly. The hum of the machinery had gradually been growing louder. Now it seemed to fill the little room. An instant later, the floor started to tremble. Paul! exclaimed Steve with immense trepidation. Paul, we're moving. Moving? It's the room. Can't you feel it? Can't you feel it? The hum of the machinery had swollen till now it reverberated in their ears. The entire room was shaking. Paul Temple paused. Then, in sudden astonishment, he realised what was happening. 
By Timothy, Steve. We're in a lift. A lift? She repeated. Keep still, he instructed. The two stood watching each other, powerless to do anything. Slowly they realised that they were descending, that they were being carried into the depths of the earth. Steve stared at Temple with an expression of bewildered astonishment. Paul, she shrieked, we're going down, we're going down, we're going down. Chapter 17. The Secret of the Lift The hum of machinery continued. For what seemed an eternity, Paul Temple and Steve Trent were imprisoned in the slowly descending lift. Neither spoke. Both could only wonder what would be the climax of this strange turn of events. There was scarcely room to move. There was nothing to be seen. The panel was the only opening, and this was now closed. There was not even a grill of any kind through which they could peer as they descended. Down and down it went. Seconds lengthened into minutes. Only the continued vibration told them they were still moving. We're stopping, Steve, said Temple. Suddenly, almost simultaneously, the lift gave a sharp jerk, and the vibration ceased. Open the panel, Steve. Steve was in a better position to slide it back than Temple. I wonder where we are, she speculated, a little nervously, as she stretched out her arm to open it. Probably the bargain basement, replied Paul Temple with grim flippancy. Here, I'll try that, he exclaimed, as he saw that Steve's efforts to open the panel were proving fruitless. With a twist of his arm, he had the panel open. Both looked out through the opening. Dimly, they could make out that they were in some kind of vault or passage. They could see two sides, six or eight feet apart. In the rear was nothing but hollow darkness. Everything was deathly still. The air seemed clammy, even though it was cold. They appeared to be deep under the earth, in some kind of queer subterranean corridor. Paul Temple had now pulled out his electric torch, thanking his lucky stars for having taken it with him, and suddenly pressed the switch. Looks like a passage of some sort, he said. Yes, agreed Steve in a whisper. They made out the stone slabs that lined the sides and the floor. They were slimy and covered with some growth that looked like moss. Stalactites up to nearly a foot long hung down from the roof. The passage itself seemed just high enough for a tall man to walk upright. The surface of the walls and ground were wet. A few yards from the lift was a cavity in which were two strong wooden cases with heavy padlocks fastening them and bound with iron. Can you get out all right? Paul Temple asked. I think so, Steve replied as she started to clamber through the opening. They don't give you much room, do they? Taking care not to rip her dinner dress, she finally managed to pull herself through. The bulkier Temple speedily followed her. Together they stood in front of the lift, peering into the distance which the light from a little electric torch could not reach. Temple put his arm round Steve's waist to reassure her, and slowly and carefully, watching out for any openings in the ground beneath them, they commenced to move forward. He handed Steve the torch, his right hand he put into his pocket. There he had his precious automatic, and his fingers closed round it with an immense feeling of satisfaction. He pulled it out and showed it to Steve so that she too could share in the feeling of security it gave. With his thumb, he pressed down the safety catch, and as they walked along, held it in front of him, ready for any emergency. I wonder where this place leads to, he remarked. I've got a pretty awful sense of direction, replied Steve, but we seem to be going towards the village as far as I can make out. We'll walk to the end, he said, after they had gone a few yards. The light from the torch began to flicker. The battery was fading. Temple cursed himself mentally for not making sure that it would last. He determined also, if he ever came out of this extraordinary situation alive, to buy a lamp with a hand-operated dynamo. 
Can you see all right? He asked Steve after a while. Not too badly, she replied. This passage is pretty old, remarked Temple. It must have been here for years. Silently, they trudged on. They were now getting more accustomed to the darkness and to the slippery surface of the stone flags over which they were walking. Now they were beginning to step out in a sharp walk. This was necessary if only to keep warm in the damp, cold air of the passage. Seems fairly long, doesn't it? said Temple after a few minutes. Suddenly, Steve came to a stop. She pulled herself free from him and pointed into the distance. Paul, she burst out. Paul, there's a light. The novelist's eyesight was not quite so keen as Steve's, but he strained his eyes to catch a glimpse of the light in the distance. Where? he asked. Oh, yes, he said suddenly. It's an oil lamp, said Steve. Someone must have been here quite recently. Someone's been here quite recently, all right, Temple remarked grimly. Don't worry about that. I wonder where the devil this passage leads to, he added thoughtfully. Steve began to smile. A fantastic thought had occurred to her. Most probably to the little general, she laughed. Everything seems to lead towards... By Timothy, Steve, interrupted Paul Temple, a tremendous elation in his voice. By Timothy, you're right. Why, Paul, you don't... Paul Temple did not let Steve finish her sentence. He explained the conclusion to which he had jumped from her chance remark. The little general lies about a hundred yards from Ashdown House. We must have come fifty yards already. And you really think this passage leads towards the inn? Steve interrupted, with obvious excitement in her voice. We'll soon find out, he replied grimly. We'll soon find out, Steve. Slowly they plodded on. Paul Temple had switched his torch off, but the faint beams from the oil lamp seemed to be reflected backwards and forwards from the shiny walls. There was just enough light for them to make their way. Moreover, they did not care to advertise their approach by using the torch. Occasionally, one or the other of them kicked hard at a stone that projected from the other flags. Otherwise, their progress remained uninterrupted. There were no hidden pitfalls, no obstructions against which they might stumble. Only here and there an old barrel, its iron hoops thick with rust. At last, they came to a halt. There's some sort of wooden staircase over there, exclaimed Steve in guarded tones. Yes, we're underneath the inn, all right, Temple whispered. I don't think there's any doubt about that. They made their way towards the stairs that Steve had indicated. Can you hear voices? asked Paul Temple suddenly. Steve listened intently. Yes, she said at last. Yes, I think I can. They could both hear men talking, but it was all too far away to distinguish what was being said. If we climb to the top of the staircase, we might hear better, suggested Temple. Yes, said Steve, obviously keyed up with excitement. She set her foot on the first step and proceeded to make her way up the staircase, followed closely by Temple. Be careful, Steve, he admonished her. Taking care not to make any noise, they climbed the old wooden stairs. The voices were growing more distinct now, but at all costs their presence must not be discovered. Suddenly a board creaked very loudly. The noise rang through the silent gloom, almost like a pistol shot. Both stopped dead. Temple gently pushed Steve to the edge of the stairs. Don't walk in the middle he whispered. Keeping close to the rail on the outside, Steve slowly and cautiously picked her way up, with Paul Temple immediately behind her. At last they came to a door from which the voices were now clearly audible. Paul, listen, said Steve, turning round. Listen. Both stood motionless behind the door. They recognised the accents of Dr Milton and Horace Daly, the innkeeper. Both appeared angry. Both were raising their voices. What happened to Skid? demanded Horace suddenly. There was a pause. Then they heard Dr. Milton's answer. He's dead. Dead? The innkeeper shrieked. I thought you said the smash was... It wasn't the smash, Horace, came from the doctor in subdued tones. There was a slight pause before Horace spoke again. Then what was it? 
he said suddenly. He had to be taken care of. Taken care of? repeated the innkeeper. There was a pause. You don't mean a knave? Yes. Steve turned to look at her companion through the gloom, but she could not make out the expression on Temple's face. Why should he? She now heard Horace demand angrily. Why should Skid be murdered? He had to go, the doctor answered. He was on the point of talking. That's what I says, came from a third voice they could not identify. It was the same with Snipey Jackson and Lefty. They did their job well, and then... Dr Milton cut the innkeeper short. Jackson was a fool, they heard him exclaim, and an incompetent fool into the bargain. He didn't even wear gloves on the Lester job. And what about Lefty? That was my fault, the doctor replied more calmly. I was sorry about that. I only meant to give the poor devil a whiff of chloroform, and he passed out on me. There was silence for a few moments. Then they heard Horace Daly speak again. Yeah, well, it sounds all right, but I'm just getting a bit windy. The knave's just a little too smart for my liking. A little too smart, eh, Horace? How very interesting. It was a woman's voice. With a start of surprise, Temple recognised it. He bent over towards Steve and whispered, Diana Thornley. If the knave wasn't smart, we shouldn't be here, my friend, the doctor continued. You can take that from me. What do you mean? They heard Horace Daly ask with hesitancy and nervousness in his voice. Dr Milton explained... The knave received information about a valuable diamond owned by a Nottingham firm called Trenchman's. Diana went round to her this morning and had a look at it. Paul Temple found a cold little hand being inserted into his. It was far too dark for either of them to see more than a dim outline of the other, but he knew by the way her hand trembled that Steve was excited. We were supposed to make all the arrangements about the job tonight, the doctor was saying. But this morning, after Diana got back, the chief rang up and, uh... He paused. Well? demanded Horace. The Trenchman diamond was a trap, a charming little noose, my friend, for us all to put our pretty little necks in. Stroof! exclaimed the innkeeper. What about Diana? he asked quickly. How do we know she wasn't spotted? We don't know. Diana's got to lie low for a while. Once again they heard the mysterious third voice join in the discussion. It's a damn good job the chief found out about Trenchman's, or we should have been in a pretty pickle. Whose idea was it to have a plant like that? demanded Horace Daly. I'd better fiver it, uh... Dr Milton interrupted him again. It was Mr Paul Temple's idea, unless I'm very much mistaken. And unless I am very much mistaken, Mr Temple is going to be aptly rewarded for his originality. And even help the poor devil if you get your hands on him, Doc. They heard the innkeeper burst out. Do you remember that Greek fella and the small drops of acid? I'll never forget his face. Why, he was, uh... Dr Milton began to laugh. It was a hard, cruel laugh, and Steve shuddered violently as she heard him. Temple put his arm about her protectively. The laughter stopped, as suddenly as it had started. Now listen, said Milton sharply. The chief's got another idea up his sleeve, and as far as I can make out, it's going to be a pretty big proposition. He wants you all here in room seven on Saturday at nine sharp. Is, uh, is he coming? inquired Horace. Yes, the doctor answered. Yes, he's coming. He paused. Dixie he said, obviously addressing the owner of the unknown voice. I want you to meet Snow at the house. I'll see he gets his instructions. Dr Milton's voice seemed to grow fainter as if he were moving across the room. Paul, exclaimed Steve in an urgent whisper. We'd better return to the house. Temple nodded. At any moment now, the door in front of them might open. There was not a moment to lose. With the knowledge that there were no obstructions or unforeseen obstacles of any kind on the stairs, they were able to go down more quickly than they had ascended. Nevertheless, they took care to avoid undue noise. Do you think we'll be able to work the lift? inquired Steve as they came to the end of the third and last flight of stairs. We'll have to, was the reply. Mind that bottom step. 
You can see quite clearly when you get used to the light, said Steve when they stood in the passage again. Yes, Paul Temple paused. Now, come on, Steve, he urged. We must hurry. They had to cover little more than a hundred yards, and both felt that they would be safer when they were back in the house again. It was dangerous to sprint along the slippery passage, but nevertheless Temple broke into a sharp trot, with Steve close behind him. The faint flickering light of his torch added to the rays from the oil lamp in the passage helped them to cover the distance fairly quickly. It was not long before they were back at the lift. Here we are, exclaimed Steve, breathlessly, but at the same time relieved. Then they noticed the panel was closed. In sudden fear, Temple began to struggle with it. It yielded to his efforts. Ah, he exclaimed, that's got it. Hurry, Steve. He bundled her unceremoniously through the opening and quickly climbed in himself. It was the work of another instant to close the panel again. They had solved the secret of the lift. The panel was at the same time entrance and operating switch. Once again they heard the hum of the electric motor, and after a second or two they felt the lift slowly moving. It's working, exclaimed Steve a little nervously. We're going up. Paul Temple nodded. I hope Boris Karloff hasn't missed us, he said grimly. At last the slow upward movement ceased, and of its own accord the panel opened. Paul Temple looked cautiously out into the drawing room. Is the room empty? inquired Steve softly. Yes. The room was just as they had left it. In all probability their absence had not even been noticed. Paul Temple stepped through the opening and turned round to assist Steve. Careful, he warned. He paused and looked round. Now, how do we close this panel from the, uh... Oh, the statue, Steve. I'll do it. Steve walked quickly over to the little statue she had discovered, gave it a twist, and to her satisfaction saw the panel close. Good, exclaimed Paul Temple. Now what? she asked. Are we going to wait here, or... No, I think we've seen enough of Ashdown House for the time being. I'll get hold of this butler fellow and tell him we're not waiting. He looked round. Is that a bell push? he asked, pointing to the wall by the fireside where Steve was standing. Yes, I'll ring. She pressed it. Then they sat down in two of the armchairs the room boasted and tried desperately hard to look both very bored and very innocent. At last they heard footsteps in the hall outside. He's coming, said Temple softly. The door opened, and Snow Williams appeared. You rang, sir? Yes, said Temple, with such a perfect air of indifference that Steve had difficulty in keeping her face straight. We've, uh, <clears throat> we've decided not to wait for Dr. Milton. Perhaps you'd be kind enough to give him my kind regards? Certainly, sir. Snow led the way to the door without any apparent suspicions. Good night, sir. Good night, miss. <laughs> 